You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. All right. Well, we are in Genesis chapter 10. I've decided not to uh, preach the latter half of Genesis 9. Um, At one point, I was going to preach that passage. If you uh, did as Kevin uh, commanded you to do and read it, uh, you know there's some weirdness there. And so you'll never know how I was going to handle that passage. But instead of dealing with the weirdness of chapter 9, we're going to go into the strangeness of Genesis 10. And Genesis 10 has been called by some people, uh, some scholars, I guess, the table of nations. And I want us to think Uh, about that word table because it's going to figure prominently in our discussion today. Now, if you will please stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's word, we're going to read just a handful of these verses. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm a chicken. I I don't want to read 70 different Hebrew proper nouns to you today, okay? Uh, It just ain't right. I can't do it. But what I am going to do is I'm going to highlight a handful of verses They're going to guide us through this chapter, and I believe, bless our hearts today if we'll let the Spirit of God speak through these. Genesis chapter 10, we're going to begin with verse 1. Notice it says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So they had families building up after the flood. Now go down to verse 8, and it starts to get interesting here with names. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Okay, that's interesting. Now look at verse 25. And the oddities continue. Notice these names. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days, the earth was divided. And that's important. That's pointing to the Babel story that we're going to deal with next week. And his brother's name was Joktan. Now, notice verse 32. That'll be our last one uh, for today. These are the clans of the son of Noah. Notice sort of a, a wrapping up of the chapter. According to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So you kind of see what's going on here. We have all these weird names and everything, but it's not just about the names and the families. There's something more going on here. We've got all these nations, and we're talking about how the earth, how the world was repopulated, okay? So we're going to talk for just a few moments this morning about uniting a world divided. Let's pray. Lord, we know we live in a very divided world, and we know, God, that we need help to bring people together. And thank you, Lord, that we have your gospel. And today I pray that the men and women in this room, all the people, all your people in this room, will have a new desire, a fresh desire uh, to unite people for the cause of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Well, if you're like me and you went to a public school here in the United States, uh, you probably have experienced a room like this, a school cafeteria. Now, that one looks a lot nicer than the one that Jenny and I had 
at Massac County High. It's funny, we've, we have friends that have stayed there and lived there, and their kids are now in high school, and like the room is exactly the same. It's really weird. Uh, but, but that's an example of a, I guess, of a, of a school cafeteria. So I want you to get this picture in your mind. We're trying to understand uh, about unifying a, a diverse world. And if you think about how it works, when you go into the high school cafeteria as a freshman, your freshman year, let's just get in our minds. Let's say we're walking into a cafeteria of a relatively large school, and there are 70 round tables. And around each one of those tables, you have, over time, a gathering of different kinds of people. So at one table, you're going to have, say, uh, some football players. Around another table, you'll have cheerleaders. Around another table, you'll have those who are studious, otherwise my table, the nerd table. Um, so you would have all these different uh, subsets in the room. Now imagine, I said that, that you're going back to your freshman year, and for some of you, this is bringing back some serious teenage angst. Uh, you'll probably have a pimple later on this afternoon just thinking about this. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you, you, your job as a freshman is to walk into that room, 70 different round tables filled with all these different people, all these subsets, and the goal is, is to get them all united behind one cause. That sounds pretty hard to do. But when you look at Genesis 10, here's what's interesting. You have um, this table of nations, and basically you have 70, it's probably a little bit more than 70, and I'll explain that a little bit later, but you have 70 different nations, and they're all very different nations with different cultural presuppositions. They're, they're going to have different foods and different languages. They're spreading out into different parts into the world. But here's what's interesting. All of this conversation about these 70 different nations, it all boils down to the fact that they all basically walked off the, the with Noah and his family. So in a sense, there is something that connects them. There is this common denominator and factor. So we have that to build on. There is something, if we go far enough back, that unites us all together. So our illustration of the cafeteria, it may sound hard, but it's not impossible. If we can find common ground, if we can find something that really does unify the world, this is possible. Now I want you to kind of Go with me into the mind of an Israelite reading this. So Moses is writing this many thousands of years ago. And the very first readers of this book would have come to chapter 10 and recognized these people names and people groups. And almost every single one of them, they would have said, yep, that's an enemy. That's an enemy. That's an enemy. Ooh, that is a really bad enemy. Um, so now we're thinking about the cafeteria and realize that every single one of those tables is filled with people that kind of hate your guts. So that's what the Israelites are facing. They're not just facing 70 different tables with 70 different cultural presuppositions, but they're looking at 70 different nations that are adversaries of Israel. And Israel, if you want to know the reality on the ground, they were this tiny little group of people. And at this time, when Moses is writing this, they really don't even have a nation yet. They're not, they don't have borders. They don't have really anything like a, a, a solid government or anything like that. They're just this uh, ragtag group of people that are going through the wilderness and, and God is saying, look around you. You see all these nations with all these big cities and big armies and, 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 and those people who hate your guts? Yeah, we need to win them. We need to make them part of the family. 
That's what Genesis 10, that's what the table of nations, the table of nations isn't given to us just so that we can acknowledge that there is a difference between people and peoples, but that we need to have a big vision from a big God to bring them all together under one banner. Genesis 10, in my view, gives us the green light to go to the nations and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And we can do this because the human family has one heavenly father and one path to heaven through Jesus Christ. And so that's our presupposition. That's our statement here today. We know there is diversity in the world. Genesis 10, all the way back, thousands of years before scholars and academics were talking about you know, diversity, before there were diversity officers at universities, we have a book that is telling us, it's thousands of years old, that there are differences in culture and differences in foods and differences in, the, in styles of music and all of these things. And though there are differences, we have a common thread and it is Jesus. As we point our way in that direction, I'll show you that. And I think it can become a unifying force for our congregation and ultimately a unifying force for all we do in Christian ministry. Let's talk about what's going on. As Noah and his family uh, get off that boat, there is new life and we see humanity's second chance. When Noah and his family stepped foot off the ark, they stepped foot into a vast and empty world, quite literally. And God's command, and it was also a blessing to Noah and his sons, was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see that in, in Genesis 9-1. God says, be fruitful and fill the earth. Multiply and fill the earth. Well, I want to tell you something. Noah and his sons were definitely uh, obeying here because you'll see very quickly that they and their sons multiply. And then you have in chapter 10, these 70-plus nations. But let me just tell you this. With 70-plus nations, that means we have 70-plus different ways to live life and to like adjust to this world. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot of diversity. That's a lot of different ways. That's why I said earlier, it's like 70 tables in the cafeteria, each table being something completely different. Now, I want to say this, cultures and different cultures, I personally love, personally love going and traveling and, and, and trying new foods and being in kind of these awkward situations where language and everything, I don't, I don't mind that very much, but for some people, that's a, that's a very stressful thing. It's culture shock, literally. And, and I want you to know that I really appreciate differences in cultural paradigms. And, and, and culture in and of itself is not necessarily an evil thing. It's not necessarily good, but I will tell you this, it leans toward evil. Every culture and every like design and how to live this life, human beings want to do it their way, not God's way. So because of that, I want you just to be aware, there is no such thing as a culture that is superior to other cultures. There are some that operate better in this way or that. They have advantages and disadvantages, there's no doubt. But I think we would be unwise, and it's certainly unhelpful to think that one culture is superior to another. We need to assume that we all have this little problem called sin. The human sin problem definitely survived the flood because it took refuge in the hearts of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They had this little virus they carried with them, okay? And it wasn't a virus in the medical sense. It was a virus in the spiritual sense. 
they had deep within their DNA the brokenness of sin that went all the way back to Genesis 3, which we talked about several weeks ago. They had a sin problem, and they carried it with them off the boat. I'm here to tell you the sad truth is, and let's just pause for a moment and acknowledge that even though uh, many of you in this room would confess to be new creations in Christ, you still struggle with sin. Someday sin does get the better of us. New life, a second chance, being born again doesn't mean that we have figured it all out. Sin keeps us from fellowship with God, and it causes us to be at odds with the people around us. So sin is not just a, a God and you problem. It's a, it's a you and me problem. And we need to always remember that. But let me just pause here for a second and offer this, this invitation to you, this, this word of advice, this call to your heart. You need Christ. You need him desperately. The sin problem that Noah and his sons carried with them, well, you carry it with you too. And no matter what culture you come from, no matter what your background is, you need the solution to the sin problem that comes in Jesus Christ. So let me just say this, and and I'm not trying to save this uh, to the end because most of you know what the reality is. The unifying force is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that he came and died for our sins so that our sins can be nailed to the cross, that we may live with him and for him forever. He gives us the hope of eternal life, the only way that that our hearts can overcome our presuppositions, our predetermined values, what we think is right, is when we surrender everything to Jesus. I want to encourage you to do that today. Now, there's basically two ways we approach this when we hear this. If we're here today and we are not Christ followers and we've not gone to church and we're not, kind of, you know, we're kind of uh, struggling with that idea or maybe seeking the truth, uh, one thing that some people do is they say, well, you know, what, what really is a sin? I mean, that, who defines what's right or wrong? And I want you to know, I don't make that definition, but God's word does. We believe that God has spoken, and in this word, he gives us uh, right and wrong, truth and falsehood. So, so just know this, when we're talking about sin, we're talking about those things that are contrary to the character of God and rules and designations, not from my heart or from Baptist's heart's, It's from the Word of God, okay? So that's the first thing I want you to realize. The other thing that I notice that people will say is this. When they're starting to really wrestle with their sins, they're like, listen, I've been doing this thing, uh, this this thing called sin a long time, whatever your sin is. And some people think that the years of sin, or maybe because it's some kind of vehement, horrible, uh, terrible, vile sin, that it's it's unforgivable. I want you to know this. it's, It's true that sin is a terrible thing. Jesus knew that. That's why he came to this planet. That's why he died for your sins. Um, Great little book. Uh, Kelsey gave it to me, and and I've been just drinking it, and it's been uh, so good. Uh, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, he talks about how with Jesus, Jesus... um, he He doesn't like count up the sins and say, well, you know, you got too many, so you can't come to me. But basically, Jesus says, whatever our offense, come to me. And what we are told is he will deal gently with us. If you will bring your sins to Jesus, he will nail them to his cross. You don't have to bear them anymore. But the key is you have to come to him. You have to surrender your heart to Jesus. 
So here as we are in the first half of the sermon here, I'm already saying to you, friends, you have to receive Jesus. It's the only way. You have to become a new creation. Just like Noah stepped off that boat and had to start a new life, if you want to find unity in this world, if you want to find power in the Spirit, you have to come to Christ and trust in Him. But let's talk a little bit more about this division that's in the earth. Because really, that's what verses 8 and 9 and verse 25. I read those three verses to you because I want you to see some of the elements of division. And I want to talk a little more broadly about the chapter, even though we're not going to look at any more of those verses with all those proper nouns in it. But one scholar puts it this way. Alan Ross says, The reader is left with the, with the people of earth. Now, this is after you read chapter 10. With the people of earth hopelessly scattered across the face of the earth and divided from one another and from God. So you say, okay, Jeremy, so basically you picked a passage of Scripture which shows humanity hopelessly scattered across the face of the earth and divided. Way to go, Jeremy. Another great encouraging sermon for us. Well, it may look that way. It really does feel that way. But we have to have this set up. We have to realize the problem. I think one of the big issues today is everybody's good at pointing out problems, but not too many people are looking for solutions. Genesis chapter 10 points out the problem, which is we live in a very diverse world, but it's aiming us toward the solution, which is in Jesus. And this cultural difference that we see throughout this passage is something that we understand. We can feel it, and, and we know that it's definitely there. We know the only solution to an earth divided is the unifying force of the gospel. We've been saying that, but let me give you an illustration of it. And once again, it has to do with tables. So we, as, as, as a team, I took a team to Italy at the end of the summer, and uh, one of our stops, one of our first stops was in a town called Vasto, and there's a picture here I'm going to show you because it's a, it's a horrible place. You would never want to go to this place. It's just so terrible. Uh, it's right there on the Adriatic Sea. It is, that picture doesn't do it justice. Those who are with me will tell you. It is a, a gorgeous place, spot in the world. And, and uh, we, we show up there, and I'm going to tell you something. Though it was a beautiful town, we were, we were tired. Uh, we'd been on a plane for, on several planes all day long. And then uh, this poor team had to deal with me driving them from Rome to Vasto, which is like two and a half hours. And so I was stressed out. Kelsey was sleeping, so she didn't care, but whatever. Her and Ashley just slept the whole time. They're like, well, it's only 30 minutes. No, let me tell you. It's like three hours almost of... Hard driving through the mountains, but anyway, kids these days. So we were, we get there, and we're all worn out, and you would think that we would, you know, just kind of go and get to a place where we're staying, and, and it, it, would, it would go smooth. It did not go smooth. It took us like another hour to find the people we were staying with. None of them spoke, all, all but one, uh, didn't speak hardly any English at all, so kind of stressful. We're tired. We're worn out. There's this communication barrier. And, you know, they're all excited to have us there, this church. And let me tell you, the church in Vassal is very interesting. It was founded in 1971. They served the Lord, a handful of believers served the Lord faithfully for 10 years before they saw one convert. But they did not give up. And 50 years later, this is a church of 60 to 70 incredibly strong believers. And we're going to send our youth group there this summer to help them win their community to Jesus. It's going to be awesome. And you need to sign up, kids, and get going on this because it is going to be a great place to go. Not just because it's a beautiful place, but because that is a town that is ready to receive Jesus. We need to be on board with that. Now, we get to this, this home, and they want to feed us dinner. And I'm a Baptist, and I'm always open up for dinner, of course. But... 
But when I haven't slept in a couple of days, I'm probably not the happiest camper, and neither were, our, were the members of our team. And so we show up, and there's this really nice house and this really long driveway that kind of goes down, okay? And it goes, it's pretty steep, and I'm parking this van that I'm not really used to on this very steep hill, and I just know I'm going to run over people and kill somebody. That is not what you want to do as a pastor on a mission trip. So we, we, we get it parked. Everything's good. And I see uh, uh, these tables, not one table, but a number of tables, kind of a hodgepodge of tables kind of joined together with different chairs and everything else, but one long table. And so we're getting there, and we're tired, and, you know, um, so we're probably all pretty socially awkward from time to time anyway, but we're really socially awkward when we're sleep-deprived. And so nobody's really, really speaking English there, and so we're kind of milling about, and it's awkward. But the church members started to show up, and a couple pretty good English speakers showed up, so it got a little better. And then we had this time of worship, and, and all of the RBC folks singing with the church at Vasto. And like all those barriers started to go away. And by the end of the night, look at this picture. I mean, we were worn out, but we were together in the gospel. We had sat at a table together, and with all of our differences, we had the commonality of Christ, and it was a beautiful evening together. Now, I want to show you just very quickly in the text a couple of things that... So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to show you uh, one of the re, uh, four reasons why, in a general sense, why this kind of diversity uh, leads to awkwardness, okay? And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you two kind of spiritual applications. But one of the reasons why, when we went down and saw that long table, we had a sense of unease, is because there were just differences. And in this chapter 10, you're going to see these phrases repeated, according to the families, according to the tongues, according to the nations, and in the lands. Those are four common phrases in the text. And as you notice, all four of those, if we can put those up, those four different designations are the reason in a practical sense why we are not able to fully connect with people. Obviously, different kind of cultural things, so like different foods and different kinds of, of worship, that would be the anthropological stuff. Uh, language is obvious. Uh, when you go and, and you just don't speak that language, it, it makes you feel uh, like, like you're just so helpless. Then, then there's politics, which we all get along so well there. Humans have got that figured out. And then in the lands, the geographical differences, people separated by, by space and, and, and aren't able to get together, that causes difference. So when you go through chapter 10, you see these designations, these differences, and we can try very hard to overcome them, and, and we, can, we can try to um, you know, learn languages, and we, we tr get on planes and travel, and uh, we can try to be very tolerant of other people's political views, all these different things, but it just always feels like we're missing something, that we're lagging behind. In a sense, if we go back to the cafeteria, it feels like everybody's still kind of sitting at their own table. And even though we're going on mission, maybe maybe we're trying to make a difference in someone's life, it just feels like there's more differences, and so many, in fact, that we can't overcome. So let me show you something in the text, very, very simple. Verses 8 and 9, we're introduced to this guy by the name of Nimrod. And in verse uh, 25, we're introduced to Peleg. Don't name your kids, either of those, but anyway... So Nimrod is interesting because he is a connecting force in much of the ancient world. He has a little bit, he has a foot in the Assyrian world. He has a foot in the, um, in the Egyptian world. And so he kind of like is this character from ancient history that must have really made a difference. Obviously, he was a hunter. 
Uh, so those of you who like to hunt, it's deer hunting season. You know, we have Wayne over here. He's, he's, a, he's a real man, likes to hunt. I hunt sandwiches. He hunts animals. Uh, we're just kind of in different places there. But Nimrod is kind of the, the big manly man uh, doing that. Okay, but here's the deal. When you really study about Nimrod in the scriptures, here's what he represents. He's the prototype of rebellion against God. Now, a minute, I gave you those, a minute ago, I gave you those four reasons why people are disconnected. But let me tell you what separates humans more than anything else. And that is our spiritual rebellion, our spiritual awkwardness. Because of our sin, that causes a distance between uh, us and others. Now, Peleg is, is different because he represents uh, what I would call culture shock or social awkwardness. Another reason why it's hard to share the gospel and to unify under Christ is because of, again, separation. Now, Peleg, it is said to us, was of the generation of separation. He was during the time of Babel. So it was during his time that people broke into their different language groups. Now, let's think about this. We talked about the four designations. Now, let's look at, at what really is the problem. We as human beings are spiritually awkward because of our sin. And we are also socially awkward because of our sin. You see, the problem isn't just reaching out to the nations. You're struggling to reach out to your neighbors. Some of you are going to tell me, I'm not ready to go on a mission trip because I'm not sharing the gospel with my neighbors. And next year, we're going to try very hard to give you tools to reach out to your neighbors. But here, the, 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 what breaks us apart, what separates us more than anything else is spiritual awkwardness and social awkwardness. And sin is the culprit in both places. Nimrod and Peleg both represent, as, as different human beings, they sort of represent and symbolize those struggles. We know we need to reach this world for Jesus, but we're struggling. And this, I believe, uh, Genesis 10 helps us understand some of the reasons why. So let's think about this as we conclude today, the nations and the Great Commission. I told you earlier that there's this mention of 70 or 70-some-odd nations. This is interesting, and it connects with Luke 10.1. Let me read this to you. Luke tells us, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, 72 and 70 is a little bit different, but there's uh, different ways to count this. In fact, uh, when you read the table of nations, Israel's not mentioned. And I'll show you an interesting thing about that here in a moment. So that would be 71. And some say that there's some differences in the languages here, uh, that maybe there is 72. It's not exact. It's not precise. But here's the deal. It seems like Jesus must have had this idea in mind. Because we are told that Jesus, when he first sent out his disciples, he sends out roughly the same number uh, of, of disciples to what we see are the nations. The symbolism cannot be missed here. From the beginning of the gospel ministry, the church has been called to reach the nations for Jesus. The mission of Jesus has always been to bring all nations back to the Heavenly Father. That's what we see in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Acts 1, 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We are called, church, to go out and rescue the nations. Not, not rescue and give them our culture, but rescue in the sense of, of reminding them that they are God's, that they are his, 
and that we love them in the name of Jesus. Now, I want to show you something that's kind of interesting in the text. In the table of nations, that word nation is the Hebrew word goy, uh, or goyim, and the word goy is, is, is a, a, a word that, yeah, kind of, it, it talks about a relationship of a group of people, and then they're different than this other nation, this other goy. So the, the goy are, again, get in your mind, the cafeteria, are the 70 different tables in the cafeteria, all unique and, and, and not quite with it, not quite together. That's what the word goy means. But in Hebrew, any time that Israel is mentioned, they're not called God's nation. They're called God's people. And what that means is, is, that, is that God wants to take people who view themselves as separate goy or nations or entities, and he wants to take away that concept of nation or nationalism and make us one family in Christ. That's powerful. Our job, church, is to bring people home, to share the gospel and see them go from being their own people, their own nations, to, to their, the people of God. What a beautiful picture of grace. What a beautiful picture of salvation. And church, we are called to share the good news of Jesus with our neighbors and the nations. We started off our time together talking about 70 cafeteria tables. In the middle, I told you the story about Vasto and this long table uh, that ended up representing for us the, the coming together of different churches and different ideas to worship Jesus together. But let me share with you one more table. The night before Jesus gave his life, we are told in Luke twenty two fifteen, Jesus said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he gathers his disciples together and says, I want I want to eat this meal with you. And there's a picture there, as we, as we sang a moment ago, His mercy is more, of, of coming and sitting at the table, not just with other people who are like-minded in terms of religion, but we need to understand that Jesus is inviting us to sit at His table. Okay, this, this cafeteria idea, no longer are we dealing with 70 different tables. We're not even dealing with one long table that, that we try to put together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ here in this world. But ultimately, what Christ is offering us is a seat at his table. And I want you to know that he is offering that to you. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what your background is. The table is set and there is a place for you. The table of the nations is a reminder of how separate we are, how diverse we are, how different we are. But the table of Jesus is one table for every tribe and tongue, and he's calling you to have a seat. Will you come and receive that invitation? Will you trust in Jesus? That's what you need to do today. It's the only way to unite a divided world is to come and sit at table with Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.